If you're looking for a hunting and fishing podcast that celebrates wild food ingredients and how to acquire them, check out the Food Afield podcast. We take you into the field with us while we adventure for food in the backcountry. The focus is on traditional bow hunting and fly fishing, but we explore all of the ways to fill your freezer. You can listen to the Food Afield podcast on Spotify and Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So this whole conversation is going to be very, to a very specific region of British Columbia, the Kootenays, probably mostly, mostly the East Kootenay. There's two parts to the Kootenay. So I just... I want to frame this a little bit for folks uh, that may not be from British Columbia. So the Kootenai region of British Columbia is in the very southeastern corner. So it's bounded by the Idaho and Montana border to the south and the British Columbia-Alberta border, which is the height of the Rockies, the Rocky Mountains, uh, along the eastern edge. And it's kind of this area <clears throat> i'd almost say like the kootenays itself is probably like about the size of idaho do you think roughly yeah for sure yeah yeah, yeah. so so that's where we are um great area geographically <clears throat> as you kind of move west to well i'll start in the east so there's the rocky mountains and then you got the v- main valley which is called the rocky mountain trench and then you go back up into a mountain range, which is the Purcells. Then you have the big Kootenai Lake system. And then you have the Selkirks going going west. So kind of three big mountain ranges. The western half of the Kootenays is more coastal-like. Cedar forests, hemlock forests, more precipitation. Uh, the Rocky Mountains and the Rocky Mountain Trench is a little bit more arid, open, um, different rock formations, limestone of the Rocky Mountains, and the the granites and stuff of the Purcells and, and the Selkirk. So that's kind of geographically. Uh, the big river systems being the Kootenai and... Um, the Arrow Lakes, which is just kind of like on the border of the West Kootenays, and the Columbia River system is over over there. Now, what I Pat, what I want to ask you a little bit about. So, so that's kind of painted the picture for folks where where we are uh, on on Google Earth. What do you think? What are your thoughts when it comes to this part of British Columbia? from the perspective of elk yeah I, paint paint a picture of the landscape for elk is this like amazing is this great is this the most marginal elk habitat on the continent um ecologically kind of paint paint that picture what were your thoughts i'm curious totally yeah i guess the first thing that comes to mind is it's a pretty diverse region like you described the west kootenai mm you get more of that rainforest type ecosystem with pretty heavy snow loads. And then as you move further east, like it's drier montane forest. And we do have elk 
across most of the region. So that kind of speaks to their adaptability. Like they're able to thrive in those really wet climates with a lot of winter precipitation, but uh, they seem to do the best, like in the drier montane ecosystems that we have in the East Kootenai. And that's why we have higher densities as you go kind of South from Invermere into the drier, drier type there. So. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause they're, primarily grazers so and i if if i am right like their origins are actually more like of a plains shrub step animal not the top of the avalanche shoots with yeah. the goats where we yeah. find them now um so yeah yeah uh grass is definitely a big a big driver i guess for for them the distribution of grassland ecosystems and, and ecotypes. But do you think that the bulls that <clears throat> still do and historically that were in the West Kootenays in that wetter belt were bigger bulls, bigger bodies and grew bigger antlers? Do you think that's yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It's interesting because you look at that bull, I don't know if it's still the non-typical record, but that arrowhead bull like he grew up in one of the wettest ecosystems we have so i think yeah like you look at the the precipitation and the summer forage like i think there's higher nutritional quality in those wetter zones but it comes at the cost of having to put up with uh real heavy snow loads so yeah i think there's something to it like the importance of forage (laughs) for putting on mass through the spring summer and autumn and you really see that in the West Kootenai with uh, the wetter system. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, that, that's that's sort of my thoughts too. But then it's a good point that you made about like the, the winter because those are like the snow belts, right, Curtis? I mean, that's where the big heli ski operations are in, you know, the Selkirks, the Purcells, yeah. and up towards Revelstoke and the Tangiers and stuff. So, yeah, no, I, that that's not good for a four, four-legged animal, those big snows. But do you, do you think the West Kootenai bulls, um, body-wise, would they ever start approaching the Roosevelt's down on the coast? I used to, yeah, I used to think so. Different subspecies, but... Yeah, I had a draw when it was all on limited entry hunting when I was a teenager, like my first elk, and I remember taking it to the meat cutter, and it was just under 600 pounds, like the four quarters. Like, they're massive elk, and, like, there's some harvested that are even bigger than that, but... uh, yeah, just wondering like how much age has to do with it too, because like when you're managing that population on draw, like you're harvesting more bulls that are kind of at that peak growth, like the six to eight plus year olds. So yeah, right. potentially having some older okay. animals like that's part of it. But I, I do think they are growing bigger in that system. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, those are all those are all good points. I just uh yeah, you know, the Rocky Mountains, like from an ecological perspective, are, are actually a pretty harsh ecosystem. And Dr. Clayton Lamb that we've had on the show before, you know, talking about grizzly bears, like 
he recognizes, or, you know, he said it's one of the main reasons that, you know, the interior grizzly bear is smaller and especially the Rocky mountains is it's like, it's, it's not known for producing a massive amount of calories. You know, it's a lot of limestone, a lot of rock, uh, calcareous soils, tough, tough for a plant to be productive here. But, um, that is the niche of bunch grasses. And so elk being the grazers. Yeah. I, I like that. I like that connection. So cool, man. That's, uh, hopefully that gives people a good uh bit of painted a mental image of kind of the area where we are and what we're going to dive into so uh appreciate that uh hey everybody it's mark hall your host curtis hall the co-host the hunter conservationist podcast is brought to you by the community-minded alpine toyota in cranbrook bc so i was trying to think about what truck we could do for this one i'm i'm guessing you can't do the illegal five point truck so maybe it's just the big elk truck wrap yeah you could have you could have a full wrap of a six point bull on a on a toyota tacoma and then it could say like this is what you're looking for you could have a five point with the big red circle and the line through it there you go oh yeah maybe maybe on one side of the truck is like a six point bull and on the other side with yeah, a big green yeah. check mark and on the other side is like the five point bull the big red there x through so it get, so get a couple tick a couple boxes with with that truck you you support alpine toyota which is pretty sweet you promote conservation and you're continuing to promote education to hunters and awareness of don't hey maybe take a second look before you shoot that five point bowl so all three of those hopefully will be coming to you you can do all three of those with the new toyota wrap the 5.6 point wrap we'll call it yeah that's but, a good uh, idea i've seen stranger so things in cranbrook <laughs> <laughs> well at least it's not lime green with pink rims yeah. so but, uh, yeah. Anyways, huge shout out to Alpine Toyota for continuing to support what we do, continuing to support conservation and the chats and talks and conversations that we have on this show. Uh, yeah, we're about to have another great conversation. So thanks, Alpine. Yeah, right in, right in Alpine's backyard here in the Kootenai. So that new dealership is oh, immense. Oh, good, eh? It's Sweet. oh man, that thing's gonna reminds me of the big car dealerships down in Spokane. Nice. It's gonna be Sweet. pretty cool. So, Patrick Stent, uh, welcome back to the show. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, you were on a couple of years ago pre COVID, uh, talking about mule deer ecology and management. So, Pat, you are a wildlife biologist, uh, with the province of BC based in Cranbrook, British Columbia, where I am, in the heart of the East Kootenai region, in the Rocky Mountain Dry Trench yeah. <laughs> ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming coming back on the show. Um, great great local topic uh, that, that I also, ho- hopefully it'll get people thinking no matter where they're listening, kind of about, you know, the 
the implications of hunter mistakes as they become cumulative in harvesting the wrong age classes of of animals so were you were you working were you around when the province commissioned the Radicke report yeah i was around i wasn't working for government but uh yeah i was just reading that the other day and it was some pretty interesting work Mm. they did like it was kind of a similar situation like not necessarily with the five point harvest but uh yeah, bull ratios were down, elk populations were down, so they were doing some in-depth analysis to kind of look at the impacts of having a young age structure and low bull ratios on the population productivity. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was I was around. I remember when that that came out. Um that basically, so that was in 1998. So the province of BC um, hired or retained um, Dr. Ken Radicke, who was a professor at the University of Washington, has a consulting firm, Radicke & Associates, which is based in Seattle now. I think they still carry on doing all types of environmental um, consulting work. And yeah, he did He did what Pat said, you know, the 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 premise was is that the bull po- or the elk population was going down from I, I got it written down here. It was around nineteen thousand and it had dropped to like sixteen thousand. Um, so there was concerns about that that downward trend. Um, they brought him in. He'd done lots of research in his career in elk and ungulates and stuff to look at population data and provide the province with some recommendations. And that. One of his recommendations was for the the shift from we had the three point or larger bull general open season starting on the tenth of September, and his primary recommendation was to shift that to a six point or bigger general open season, and um, <clears throat> that was without controversy, which. Pats, well used to in, in the the Kootenays. Um, so basically, what it was is it was the continuing of what a lot of people were railing against was a general open season rifle hunt during the rut, uh, early September. Now it was focusing just on the big the big bulls, and people thought that that was not good for elk conservation and elk management and the controversy was is that it was pandering to the guide outfitters whose clients were only interested in the trophy bulls um so that happened to be what the season was a 40-day trophy bull season which uh eliminated all the meat hunters from taking three fours and fives um just so that you know they could recruit big six-point bulls for the foreign hunters so tinfoil hat kind of stuff probably but for some folks that's pretty real I found a, an old press release about this and uh, so it said the province is adopting a general open season on six point bulls from September 10th to October 20th they're eliminating limited entry hunting season for cow and calf elk um Environment Minister Kathy McGregor said 
Radeke found, and this is in capitals, no compelling biological reason to end bull hunting during the entire rut season in 1998. So, I don't know, do you think, do you think that that is correct, that we're, that's the reason we still have the six-point season is still stemmed from the Radeke report? I think so, yeah. It's a pretty strong analysis, analysis he did, and yeah, I guess uh, like when you look at the six-point season, like it does a pretty good job of maximizing hunter participation and allowing people to hunt elk in their backyard every year while limiting the harvest to a certain age structure. So, yeah, I think right. uh, despite the challenges we face with the six-point season, like a we did a survey a few years back and it seems like people really appreciate that opportunity to get out and hunt elk every year, as opposed to having to put in for a draw and wait who knows how many years to get selected. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely recall that sentiment being out there as, you know, folks were saying they would rather have a general open season so they could go out and bugle elk and try to look for it. If it was a nine point or bigger season or a 10 point or bigger season, (laughs) people didn't care. It's just like the opportunity to go out and hunt elk, um, is just integral to the culture here. So, um, that's an, that's an interesting dynamic for a wildlife manager, right? Where it's just like, we would rather hunt white elephants (laughs) than to put in a, a draw for one right so yeah but no i like that piece of history and i remember it, i think it was before 91 we had a three point or better season mm-hmm. like through the 80s and then that switched to that split season like it was six point or better during the rut and then it went back to three point post rut oh, okay yeah. i remember that and then yeah. like you say yeah. it was 1998 when we switched to six point only but just now, like it's hard for me to envision being able to sustain that three-point season <laughs> with, uh, oh. yeah, like with the way the region is, like with oh. the hunting pressure and the access and everything. Like it's just amazing that they were able to sustain it for that long. Well, that was that was kind of the heyday of my elk hunting career. Was in that three-point season that you were talking about in the early part of the season, and. It was even while I was going to university, I would like skip the first two weeks of class and come back to go elk hunting. And man, I think uh, I'm just looking around in in the shop here at the antlers that are up. But I remember I was six or seven straight years of getting a a bull, Um, you know, anywhere from I think a four point raghorn was one of the smallest, one of the best tasting too. and uh mostly all five points and um one big six point and and pro like i call them five points but there's one there that would technically be a legal legal six point but i would never never call it that so i mean now that, that was just one person uh that was 80s early 90s and so seven years in a row of successful on a bull so I think a lot of people probably were and yeah, I I can see, I can see what you're saying. That would be pretty hard to sustain that. Yeah. Yeah. But no, even I could be a decent elk hunter in that season, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I got, I got the antlers on the wall when I was young in the three point season. And it's like, Oh man, he was, he was like a good elk hunter. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, reading that report and, uh, you saw that there was a lot of concern, like with the bull ratios coming down. Like I think when they switched over to six point season, they're down at like 12 bulls per hundred cows, which yeah, it's, uh, not a crisis at that point, but, uh, I remember there was quite a bit of concern there with uh, the impact that three-point season was having on the bull demographic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of, kind of some interesting um, history, which kind of paints uh, the story of you know sort of where we're at today. Layered on top of that, we do have the archery season, which is first uh, of September to the ninth, and that's any bull. Um, so that's. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's different. Uh, I don't know how many bulls are taken in the archery season. Obviously for it to be in any bull season, it's not enough to make a dent, uh, you know, anywhere. It's probably more to get run over on the highway and train tracks than bow hunters get in that first nine days pre-rot elk hunting when it's hot. It's tough, but it's fun. So Pat, maybe, Maybe start us off and just kind of talk a little bit about the elk populations here, even if we want to just zero down specifically to the East Kootenai region. For sure. Um, if that's kind of where we're having the issue with um, these undersized bulls. Tell us what the state of your knowledge is on the elk population trends, uh, what you're seeing, demographics. Yeah, totally. So when I was first hired as a wildlife biologist, my job was to carry out the big elk inventory in the East Kootenai Trench, the winter survey where we update the population estimate. And that was back in 2008. And at that point, there was a lot of elk around. <laughs> like I was a West Kootenai kid, so my mind was completely blown seeing like hundreds <laughs> of elk every day. And yeah, so the East Kootenai Trench, like Invermere South to the U.S. border, the estimate was over 14,000 elk back then and numbers had kind of gone up like from the early 2000s and that was kind of the the peak during that decade so yeah 14,000 elk and there was too many given the available habitat and there were some impacts to winter range so populations were reduced through a cow calf hunt that occurred for i think it was 3 years And so then populations were reduced by about 35 to 40%. And we updated the inventory in 2012, and we realized that we met our objective for reducing the population. So much of the cow-calf hunting opportunities were eliminated or majorly restricted. And this is where it gets kind of interesting because without – that cow-calf harvest pressure out there. We kind of expected populations to trend up a little bit, but we did our follow-up survey five years later. It was 2017, 18, and numbers had declined even further, and we were down to Mm. 7,000 elk Mm. in that Invermere south zone, so down 50% from what we had in 2008. And even more concerning, like the 
bowl seasons didn't really change substantially over that time period. Like we did have a spike elk season down low in the agricultural zone, but our bull ratios tanked. Like we were at 28 bulls per hundred cows in 2008. And then we were down to 14 in 2017. So wow. yeah, pretty concerning. Wow. That's the, yeah, that's the recent history. Like you can go back even farther, but yeah, this elk management in the Kootenays, like there's kind of that, uh, cyclical pattern of having too many elk and then too few and when you have too many elk there's that conflict with the private landowners with the agriculture so yeah yeah it's trying to find that balance right I, th- I think one one piece that's really important uh in this conversation which probably uh i didn't paint maybe at the beginning sort of describing the region is winter range versus summer range for elk so here in the east kootenai region the rocky mountain trench the valley floor between the rockies to the east and the selkirks the purcells sorry to the west there's a flat valley and you can literally stand at the foothills of the Rocky mountains and you can look across and see the Purcells just by Kimberly. It's, I think it's 50 kilometers wide or something at the, at the, you know, on average. And this little narrow strip is the low elevation winter range. So there's bukus of summer range up in the Rocky mountains and the Purcells and this little tiny strip of low elevation, low snow, grassland habitat in the valley floor that's got to be able to carry this elk herd through the wintertime. And that valley, just like the stories you see in Colorado and all this kind of stuff, housing development, golf courses, our major highways, our railroads, our towns, our ag zones, um, they started to get high fenced and more traffic because this became a recreational destination area because of the golf courses and the lakes. So it's this little tiny piece of land and, and um, it's changed a lot in, in 20 years. And I think that's what you were talking about in that survey where you were like, whoa, there's not enough winter range for where we're sitting at. And you wanted to do a little bit of a balancing there. Totally. Yeah. You could tell like walking around those fescue grasslands, like the really important winter range for elk, like it was just grazed down to nubs and Mm. yeah, the elk like visibly you could see they're in pretty poor condition in the late winter. So definitely too many animals on the landscape for the amount of forage we had. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because I think that's the major downfall of this from an elk ecological perspective is, you know, and and basically that, that valley floor, as you hit the Montana border, that starts to open up and it's like most of Montana is like winter range. Yeah. Uh, and, and so they can, and we're not that far away but they can support so many more elk because when you drive all the way down, you know, through Montana and, and stuff, it's like, God, everything is elk winter range down totally. there. So, yeah. so when you're like, well, why can't we be like Montana and stuff? And it's like, well, if you can flatten some of these mountains out and widen the Valley, we probably could, but yeah. So is there any, uh, what are, what are some other important, 
<clears throat> um, demographics to the population kind of like currently right now um bull to cow ratios calves what 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 are you seeing as a as a manager that's kind of will tie into this bull harvest question yeah totally uh like calf to cow ratios they've been pretty mediocre yeah since i've been here like obviously when you have a severe winter like we did 2016 17 and 17 18 we saw pretty low calf to cow ratios so that's uh that's concerning they yeah there's some signs that things are starting to pick up a little bit like we do carry over surveys in the late winter to look at calf to cow ratios and uh yeah we have some years where it looks like we're seeing an improvement there and like our harvest is starting to pick up a little bit and those anecdotal reports of people seeing more elk and more calves like that's good to hear so yeah calf to cow ratio it's been kind of mixed and yeah pregnancy rates like we've been putting out some collars on elk just for routine survival monitoring in the east kootenai and they've actually been pretty decent the last go around remember the elk valley they had one year where it was pretty low pregnancy rates but mm-hmm. the last time it was 2019 we put out I think it was 30 callers and we were at 87% pregnancy. So that was encouraging to see like there's so much talk about like the impacts of our seasons on the mating, the mating structure and the ruts. So when you see high pregnancy rates, like that's a good sign. We don't have information on conception dates because that's the other potential impact of uh, harvesting and hunting bulls through the rut is that you could be messing with the conception and having elk getting pregnant later on and then having calves later on in the spring. So gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I know that was a big part of that report that you were talking about. Like they were thinking that was one of the mechanisms uh, back when they had the three point and six point seasons. But uh, yeah, no, they also had pretty high pregnancy rates in the late nineties and, relatively short uh conception early okay yeah, i think it was nope. uh they said like 86 percent of cows conceived between september 11th and october 10th so yeah it's sounded pretty good yeah um is there sort of a th- like a threshold number for that like you know anything above 85 is a pretty healthy number like if you look around north america like what's what what where would that pregnancy rate stand yeah that was uh pretty average i'd say like i think it was a bit better than average but uh okay yeah i want to say like 80 percent would be kind of like the long-term average okay yeah yeah, it, it seems to me I've kind of seen that in other studies and stuff in the U.S. and stuff that kind of like pregnancy rates that are up in that 80-ish range are like you're, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. You know, considering that, you know, you've got some mortality and some, you know, demographic of older age classes that aren't conceiving or having troubles and, you know, in the, the 80s, 80s a, a, a pretty pretty good threshold. Okay. Um, now let's uh, let's get you to kind of give us a little bit of a rundown on 
even if it's just the last few years of bull, just overall bull harvest uh, in the area, kind of num- numbers, what, what, what are you trying to target, you know, or what, where would you like to see the bull harvest be? Six point. Yeah, so the six-point season, you're primarily harvesting four- and five-year-old bulls. And you do have uh, a small percentage of three-year-old bulls that are vulnerable to harvest that have six points when they're three years old. But, yeah, looking oh, back. That's hard to believe, yeah. eh? Three years. That's Yeah. Oh. There's been some uh, tooth-age analysis done. And I think they said, uh, I think it was like, 20% of the bulls shot in that six-point season were three-year-olds, but the vast majority Holy. were four- and five-year-olds. So, yeah, that's kind of like the reasoning behind that six-point season. Like, you're focusing harvest on those four-plus-year-olds, and those younger animals, like your two- and three-year-olds, are being recruited into the prime breeding age because they're, they're uh, excluded from the hunt. So... Yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of the objective behind it, and overall harvest numbers. It's uh, we're definitely down from where we were. Like, yeah, the mid two thousands, like two thousand five, two thousand six, we were harvesting over a thousand six points in the East Kootenai or right around there, and now we're kind of in that six to seven hundred range. So we're oh wow, yeah. okay. Yeah, we're definitely down. And yeah, just anecdotally, like from doing these mm. surveys, it seems like I'd be, I suspect we're harvesting a higher percentage of those six points too. Mm. Having hunter numbers staying pretty high, but having lower numbers of elk, it's like it's focusing the pressure on the available six points, and there's fewer that are making it through that season. Right. Okay. And I'll know more okay. after we do this big survey this winter. But that's kind of my hunch. Yeah, okay. Like I think we're kind of starting to harvest bulls as they become legal, and we're not seeing many that make it through. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I I recall. Maybe I'm wrong. In Radicky's report, I think they did some modeling and some some predictive modeling about bull harvest into the future and i do think i remember saying him saying like you're probably in the beginning years of this season you're going to have like a bull harvest that's high but then you're going to see it come down and then kind of like should should sort of flatline like you should be kind of like roughly around like x x number but i think i i think i'm pretty sure i remember him talking about this kind of this fall down effect in the first couple of years or whatever so totally yeah and we definitely saw that in the west kootenai because it was on draw for the longest time and then it was taken off leh in 2010 and there was Mm. two or three years where harvest was pretty high like we're harvesting 250 plus bulls per year and then we're kind of harvesting around like a hundred now and i think it was like you say like you have those multiple different age classes of six points that are out there and those are getting harvested faster than they're being recruited. Mm. And then your harvest kind of switches to that, uh, like the younger, like the four and five year olds that are just becoming six points that fall. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 
Okay, so now um, let's let's kind of dig into the illegal harvest component of of what's been going on the last couple of years. That's got um, everyone, you know, quite concerned. So, is there is there like a threshold? Like, how do you determine, you know, what's what sort of like okay there were x number of you know bull shot this year that were illegal didn't didn't weren't legal six points and then it's kind of like that's in the green zone and then the yellow zone and then the, then the red zone right um where you're starting to, to lose sleep and you're calling the seals every morning to get a report or whatever um it, do you is there something like that um like what what kind of is is sort of that's unfortunate but we can accept that um versus whoa i'm really concerned here yeah unfortunately we don't have something like that we're currently updating our elk management plan and that's going to be part of it like what is an acceptable rate of mistake and kill i'd say like around one percent seems reasonable but uh yeah, as of last season, we're up close to 10% of our bull kill was mistaken five points being harvested. And Holy. Yeah, I think all hunters and conservationists just think that's way too high. It's not unprecedented, though. Like, that's one of the downsides of antler point restrictions. And there's been states who've reported, like, up to 15% mistaken kill. And, uh, yeah, it seems to be more when they change seasons, like it's a new season and hunters aren't quite familiar with it. But like we've been talking about, we've had this season for a long time now. So, yeah, just something's going on that we don't fully understand. I I know what you mean about when when the seasons switched. Um, I remember hearing a report because we had had an early spike season – in kind of the ag areas, a spike bull season for the first 10 days or something of the season or whatever. And, and then the next year it was taken off. And I remember some phones in a report and they go out and it's like, Hey, got a bull. Yeah. We got this spike. And it's like, well, season's not open this year. It's like, read, read your regs. So, so I, I totally get like people like, Oh, we come here every year for the 10 day spike season. Oh Um, man. So, so wow, up to, up to fifteen percent, um, and yeah, that's. I mean, there's a number of you know species in the province. Caribou. Um, we have zones where they have to have five points above the rear guard. We've got the really complicated um, moose antler restrictions up in parts of the northeast with the uh the tripom or 10 point and uh, like i couldn't even um, imagine trying to you know assess you know those those bulls um so obviously there's going to be a rate of mistakes that's related sheep uh of course maybe a lot of people that have been following some of our um, colleagues' podcasts were talking about the stone sheep issue in northwestern BC and the number of short rams that were taken last year were kind of peaked. The biologist's concern threshold at like 17 or something 
yeah. stone sheep in a, in a couple of zones. So, yeah, you, you set these managers like you, you set these limits to be managing harvest off a certain demographic and then there's humans making mistakes for, for whatever reasons in there. And, and, um, so has, is, was last year the, the, like, uh, the big peak, like everybody's like, Whoa, what happened last year? Was it like trending upwards? Uh, or was it just this big, what happened last year? Everybody was in shock. It was trending upwards. It's been the last three to four years. We've been starting to see more and more. And yeah, talking to the conservation officers, they historically saw that pulse towards the end of the season. And I know you did that awesome article about the danger zone. And like that was occurring for a few years. But yeah, for whatever reason, last year it was all through the season. And this year, it sounds like we're off to a similar start. Wow. Um, so about 10% of the harvest, do you know how many bulls last year that that equated to that were less than six point? Yeah, so in the zone, like it's the southern East Kootenai, so Canal Flats south and includes Fernie, it was 56 yeah jeez wow wow yeah and uh i was assuming that a bunch of these elk were kind of like those six points like with a tiny little nub that doesn't qualify as a point like i could see how hunters are more likely to make that mistake but definitely the majority are clean five points and four points and like small raghorn kind of bulls so Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There are some with that uh, small, like a small six point that doesn't meet the definition of a point. But yeah, the vast majority are it's not even close to making it. No, not even close. Yeah. Like a, like a, you know, like you said, a raghorn three point or, you know, even spikes. Yeah. <laughs> seen, seen those. Uh, yeah. That's definitely not, not a six point. Uh, yeah. So. So those, that's dipping into that age class that you said that was this season is designed to protect. So those two and three year old age classes, right? Like a, um, well, a spike could be a year, year and a half, but um, the raghorns and stuff in that that two two three year. So that's that's dipping dipping into that uh, future recruitment. Totally. Yeah, and there there are some implications, like as of right now with the bull ratios that we have like i don't think we're quite impacting breeding because bull ratios ratios will be higher during the rut than when we survey them so we're we're generally a bit higher than uh, what we record during the surveys but i think the thing that's more concerning to me is the rate that this is happening at like if we continue to see this increase in mistake and kill what's it going to look like five years down the road and with so much participation in this hunt, like we've got 7,000 people hunting elk in the East Kootenai and it's about 1% that are making the mistakes. Like what's going to happen if we see that increase even more? Yeah, that's, 
Yeah, I, I can see when you're looking forward into the future uh, of this trend of that number growing, uh, you know, 60, 80, you know, 100 or whatever, at, at some point, um, a decision will have to be made that it's not, the hunt's not sustainable, you know, and uh, so, so do we understand what, what's behind this what's behind the hunter mistakes i'm sure you you've been in like numerous conversations over the last year and a bit about what what is what is going on out there what's have you have you heard from the conservation officers that deal firsthand with this saying yes it's like it's this or mostly that or is it just hard to nail down yeah, those were our first questions. Like, what demographic are we looking at? How are these mistakes being made? And it just sounds like it's a random cross-section of the hunting community. Like, it's new hunters that are messing up. It's seasoned veterans that are making mistakes. But, yeah, I wish I, I, wish I had a better understanding of what was happening. But it seems like, yeah, for whatever reason, people are feeling the pressure to harvest something. Like I think having yeah. fewer elk on the landscape, but uh, substantial number of hunters, like that's probably playing into it. But yeah, I wish I wish I knew what was going on. Like we're wildlife managers, we're yeah. not social scientists, but we kind of need to tap into that knowledge base now. Oh, this is this is very much a you know getting inside the the mind of a hunter to see what's driving this because these are things that you know, as a manager, um, and as a broader hunting community, like we can all play a role in kind of, in, 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 you know, in, in trying to reverse this to try to like, you know, self-correct the system. And of course you were probably following this last year with the stone sheep issue in Northwestern BC. Like there was a whole lot of conversations about like, it's the, it, the social media is driving it, right? Like people, they so want to ram and they, you know, they're just, they, they want to get all the attaboys and the likes and, and to, to get kicked out of the wild sheep societies, less than one club or whatever. Like, yeah. but, but, you know, these were all possible reasons, but not anything that, as a manager, I, I think you would probably feel comfortable saying like, there's some, there's some data, there's some interviews, there's some, um, you know, things that were put into categories that I can look yeah. at. It's just a black box. So from what you have looked at and the conversations that you've had and, you know, the experiences, do you think there's any aspect of this that's related to like there's there's malintent here like there's malicious intent there's people with bad attitudes that um just are like shoot first then check to see if it's legal if not you know walk away whatever and then other people are finding these these dead bulls like is that yeah i, I think there's what do you think some of that going on, like it sounds like the majority of it is an honest mistake. And yeah, okay. I think most hunters are self-reporting, which is the right thing to do. But uh, okay, good, good. Yeah, I good, know there's yeah. been 
quite a few that people have stumbled across, like someone shot and left a five point bowl and didn't report it. And that's, that's the real troubling part. Yeah. And talking to the COs too, like you can just tell it really takes something out of them too. Like, it's just so sad for them to see that, especially when the meat's going to waste and yeah. the time commitment that it involves for them. They, uh, they estimate it's about 70% of their time during the elk season is dealing with illegal and mistaken five points. So it's taking time away from other things that they should be doing, like patrolling and yeah, trying to catch mm-hmm. poachers mm-hmm. and the grizzly bear file. So yeah, we're, uh, we're feeling the pressure from them too, that uh, something needs to change out there. Like we just can't continue at this rate. So I guess, um, I mean, the, the, you know, the conservation officer service would probably answer this, but maybe, you know, like, are, are they having to do like, kind of like a full investigation on a found elk? Like, do they got to like get the metal detector out and see if they can pull a, a slug out of it? And like, is there a, yeah, I think for those ones it is, yeah, much bigger time commitment, but, uh, like okay. the basic one, uh, like it takes about a day of their time they were telling me to deal with it like if it's a self-report like yeah figuring out the meat and everything but yeah apparently there's uh like people who are making mistakes more than once too so yeah i think they're uh those are taking a lot more of their resources because they uh they think those people should be punished to uh to a larger degree and i tend to agree with that too Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think most pe- people would. Um, yeah, so I, I yeah I can understand that from their perspective because they've got to escalate um, if they've got to put in a request for a hunting license suspension and stuff. Then yeah. the amount of paperwork on their end and legal stuff and all that becomes much more time consuming. So yeah, I mean how utter, utterly frustrating for uh, for them and for for managers too. Probably you know each each morning or whatever you know finding out you know something or a call that's coming in and so you said said this year's kind of report numbers are looking similar yeah rate of as last year yeah as of today is it what the 20th today so they've had it was either seven or eight when i talked to them today so so that's about one every two to three days in the first 20 days of of the season. So this episode's coming out on uh, 1st of October. Um, so there still will be 20 days of, of the elk season, of which you were indicating, you said at the beginning, Pat, that um, uh, you see a big trend in the last, last part of the season, uh, week, week and a half, if I recall, somewhere in there, of self-reports of about want one a day if i can yeah. remember yeah exactly my history yeah yeah but i also wonder how many of those aren't discovered at all you know like when you're out shed hunting in the spring and you stumble across like a five point like how many of those elk aren't reported and get shot and nobody knows about it yeah especially if it's you know once once all the animals get it and pull pieces all over the, yeah. over the landscape and stuff. Then it's, then it's sort of like, Oh, it's just a, 
it's a deadhead, it's a winter kill, it's a wolf kill, it's, you know, whatever. No, I, I, I you know, unless there's an actual like bullet hole in the, yeah. in the skull or something that, um, that, that'd be pretty tough to tell. So, geez, yeah, that, you know, that's one of the things about this story that really interests me is, is, is that, is that human decision side of things? It's like, what, what are the circumstances, the situations, the, the thoughts, the pressures, the like, whatever it is that led people to make the mistakes. And I, I know if you self-report, you probably have to give like a little statement, um, you know, to say, you know, what happened. And then the conservation officer would probably use their judgment a little bit to say, okay, seemed to do everything right. And it was this situation and um, versus like, <laughs> really that was very careless yeah. right it's like oh i thought it was a legal ram looking at it with my old grandpa's binoculars from a thousand yards away when i shot at it they're like okay that's you know uh um not a very diligent you know story but uh, yeah i mean f- for me i've always even thought is like it, it would be great to be able to do some kind of like anonymous interviews with people that have been in these situations and and have somebody that was you know trained to do like a a real in-depth detailed breakdown and there's no fear of repercussions of losing their hunting license or anything they're just trying to contribute some honest information to to help people understand so that maybe we can put some you know some mechanisms in place and yeah i i really wonder like i I have my hunches that it's people just not taking the time and you know the panic feeling like when you see an elk that's got yep. decent headgear and you know like you've got seconds before he's going to see you or wind you and he's going to take off. So I kind of I think that's part of the problem having fewer elk on the landscape like people aren't seeing as many chances to harvest an elk so that's some added pressure there but Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. lots of questions, not many answers. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I, I, I pretty much only hunt elk in the archery season, the early archery season, and it's hot and there's not, a, we're, we don't hunt a lot of like open areas. They're in timbered areas, thick alder areas, thick brushy areas, you know, on, on slopes and draws where it's cool and there's a bit of water. And I don't know if a lot of rifle hunters hunt like that or, or the elk's behavior changes when the rut hits. So there's more open country hunting, but I, I just know, and you guys know that in this part of the world, this is not like Colorado and Utah and stuff where guys are laying on ridges with their big spotting scopes. And there's like six bulls out there and you can sit there and watch them for like three hours kind of thing. It's this, these close encounters it's even if it's in a cut block it's like you guys know what an elk is doing when it's in a cut block when you see it it's like holy he we've only got a few minutes or seconds and he's going to be into the timber right and there's these these quick these quick decisions and totally yeah and the like looking at an elk head on too like it seems you really got to wait for that side view hey like for them to 
turn their head to get oh, yeah, like the side perspective. And like when you're calling elk too, like they really don't like to do that. Like they're staring at you so intently. So staring straight at you. Yeah. So yep. I think, yeah, maybe again, it just goes back to people not taking the time to yeah. make that uh, full count. Yeah. And, and, you know, without sort of like really knowing, you know, it, it's hard because it's like if you want to create like an education campaign or an advocacy campaign or an awareness campaign, it's like, hey, folks, like, here's the three things, you know, it, it's, it's so hard when you don't know what, you know, what, what the drivers are, when you're seeing four points and three points being you know, a, a lot of those being taken. It's like, what's the advocacy campaign? It's kind of yeah. like, it's not like the tine, the sixth tine was short by a quarter of an inch. It's like you were missing three times on totally. that team. So what kind of advocacy campaign could you put out there that would be taken seriously? Like, you know, yeah. hey folks, one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. And like I mentioned before, it's, it's about 1% of our hunters that are, making mistakes and yeah i just want to emphasize like the vast majority of people are being diligent and like you don't really hear mm. oh, from absolutely. them like they're no absolutely doing everything right and you don't want to punish them for the mistakes of the one percent but like you say how do you reach out to that that demographic that seems to be having some struggles with this season and in the, and and I hundred percent you know ag- agree with that. Um, you know it's kind of the whole federal gun thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there's this small percentage of illegal use of handguns. So it's like well we'll take them away from all the you know um, like like I get I get I get that and and I think there are you know a, a lot of experienced people out there that you know, they've taken bulls, whether they get one or not, like they're going to wait for that opportunity um, to make sure they can, you know, they can judge it right. But if that 1% is accounting for X number of dead animals, that's becoming a hunting opportunity conservation concern for you as a manager, then 1% is like that we've always said is, going to ruin it you know for everybody and so somehow we got to reach that one percent with some kind of messages i just wish i knew what you know would would be the messages and i think a key one that you're saying is like take your time yeah yeah um and take take your time make sure you see six um and and you know, part part of it I, I've wondered about is we've got this a legal tine has to be a minimum of two and a half centimeters, but it can't be wider than two and a half centimeters at at that base, like that length down the down the tine. Yeah. And I thought, man, that's complicated. Uh, you know, a, a little bit. How do you judge that? You know, from a distance. But if that's not the thing that's getting people, you know. A three-point versus, you know, all of these marginal six-point bulls. Then, you know, changing the definition of a tine or educating people on how to measure that tine isn't really going to be the successful solution. I mean, does that that make sense? Yeah, I think it's still worth 
people better understanding the definition of a point. And I, I know you uh, were talking about some educational materials, like looking at some of those elk and which qualify mm. as a time versus which don't. I think that'd be super valuable because I think it might surprise some people. But yeah, trying to, <laughs> again, trying to get to the people who aren't taking the time and are harvesting like clean five points and four points. I'm scratching my head at how we reach that group. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you've heard it, but there's like a couple of, you know, sayings floating around out there in the hunting community about, you know, all you need to do is see that whale tail at the end, that big fork at the very end. And that's a six point bull. Right. And it's like, no, that's a five point bull with his head laid back. And it's like, you know, so I, I really get uh, concerned when I hear things like that. I don't know how much that comes into play where people are just getting an instant glimpse and seeing a big, two big forks in the back. And Uh, yeah, I've heard that a lot. Like you look at that, fourth point which is the tallest and if there's a fork behind number four yep then you're good to go and that works nine times out of ten but you're eventually going to get burnt <laughs> by a bull who doesn't have both of his brow tines so no abs- absolutely yeah. so so one of my questions would be is there a way of changing the antler restriction so that you're still harvesting the bull demographic that you want that wouldn't be correlated to six points or more. Is there anything else you know of? Like, I know I've heard of these ones in, uh, I think, Montana, where it has to have um, the at least one forward brow time. Yeah. Um, and, and I assume the wildlife managers are doing that because if it's got like one forward brow tine or two, then it's, it's X age or older. Totally. Yeah. I, I don't know. Have, have you seen anything or thought of anything like that? That Yeah, we've talked about it. I know, yeah, Idaho's and Montana, like they're both on that program and they're not necessarily targeting like the older age classes like i think they're getting quite a few like three-year-old bulls in their harvest okay okay Okay. and they're doing that post rut like i'm I'm sure something could work for us but you're gonna be losing that ability to hunt during the rut like i think that kind of a season through the rut like you'd really be hammering like you have pretty low bull ratios and be smacking those bulls that you want to have do the breeding or be recruited into breeding age. So yeah, there, there's for sure something there, but it comes at a price. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we've seen this in lots of different, you know, antler configuration, legality type things. There's always the marginal cases. Yeah. I, I remember when there was a general open season on moose here but the restriction was is the brow tine had to be six inches or longer. Right. And there were always ones where there was five and a half or five and three quarters or, you know, and miraculously like 90% of the bulls that, that, you know, most of the brow tines were between five and three quarters and six and a quarter inches <laughs> yeah. long. So it was like, you were always kind of gambling that like, 
you know, with one inch plus or minus at a, at a hundred yards. So you always create these marginal situations. And I've heard people say that, well, if you went to the definition of a tine was three inches or four inches. So it was like, as long as your finger, you're still going to have marginal, totally marginal cases and, and, and illegal bowls. So, yeah, no, like for the yeah. most part, like until recently, like we've, uh, we've loved this six point season and we've been happy with, the results we're seeing and everybody's been pretty good at uh, following along with it. But uh, yeah, whatever's changed over the past few years. Like, do you have any thoughts on what's going on out there? What's your perspective? Curtis? Uh, <clears throat> what's, what's the talk on the construction site? <laughs> I think it's just uh... I was thinking about it the other day, actually, because I had a, a my boss was was out, and um, he said that they had they were into some bulls, and it's just that kind of the whole fast and everything everything happens so fast with them. And I think because he talks a lot about it too, because he's not super close with following what's going on. But I wonder maybe if it's a, a correlation of people think the elk numbers are dropping really fast and they don't have much longer to elk hunt maybe that coupled with the stress of everything happens so fast they're just making these decisions these split second decisions that it's like who know maybe elk might go leh next year like i just got to try to shoot a bull or like mm. i don't know that it's kind of one of my theories is is it's a combination of both both of those two things hard to say yeah interesting i don't know if we have anything out there as far as educational material specifically tied to the six-point regulation that compares to the the program for teaching hunters to differentiate between a billy and a nanny mountain goat um, there's one out there by the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. I think Steve Rinella narrates it. Uh, there's the sheep one. I think there's a couple of sheep ones out there uh, about about educating people about those. Um, I don't know if something like that would help on this less experienced, um, like starting out hunting crowd if they're you know and and again it's almost like i'd like to want to know it's like hey you self-reported a bull how many years have you been hunting first year less than three and you're going oh okay um that to me would be the evidence to point towards let's give these folks something better um you know a slide presentation is this a legal six-point bull you know uh yes or no you know and the next one you know would you shoot or pass you know all that kind of stuff that's easy to do on a slide presentation because the consequences are are zero when it's a learning opportunity like the, the the billy nanny one uh, but being able to provide, you know, tips and pointers and things to look out for and things behind the antlers and this thing of facing straight on and waiting for them to turn their head just like you would for a broadside shot, yeah. double long shot, those sorts of things. Um, but I would hate to invest and in, have somebody invest in something like that if it if that's not reaching 
like the right causes. So I don't know what, what are your thoughts on that? Would something like that be valuable to a wildlife manager? I think so. Yeah. I, I really don't think we do a good enough job on the education piece and like staying on top of the hunter demographic and yeah, trying to reach out to the audience where it's really needed and with everything coming online, like there's new opportunities. Like I can get an email list for every hunter who purchased an elk tag in the region. So there's like that ability to reach a large audience. So I really think it's worth exploring. And I think maybe step one is just bringing people's attention to it. Like saying, Hey, this is a serious issue because some of the reports I'm hearing, like people just don't, see the significance like they kind of see it as like well yeah i harvested a five point like no big deal like it's one bull out of how many but uh yeah trying to raise the flag and say like this is an emerging issue like we have this six point season so hunters can participate every year like you really need to do your part in uh being extra careful to keep this awesome opportunity that we have yeah, that's a that's a fantastic message. Um, yeah, because this this is an emerging issue. It's an increasing trend. Um, like you said uh, earlier, if this carries on, there will be a point in two, three, four, five, five years where the managers are going to go. This there we do have the evidence now this is impacting breeding this is in, impacting recruitment this is a elk herd conservation issue or it's a hunting opportunity issue you know fewer and fewer bulls are being you know uh available next year for six points and for you know for the for the hunting and then you know as we've seen with so many things when there you know it is an issue um turtling back or cutting back on hunting opportunity, numbers of hunters, length of seasons, all of those sorts of things who, you know, the opportunities of draw system versus open season, those all become things that a wildlife manager has to start to reach for when you see uh, a concern with, with the populations. These are big levers where you can't just go, Oh, we'll just like do this. And it's like, wow, look at, we got, you know, 3000 more elk than we had last year. It's just, it's a, it's a system that just can't, can't be dialed like that. So I, yeah, hundred, hundred percent agree um, with you. It's like, I think, you know, folks treasure everywhere in British Columbia treasure what we have, you know, in this area. And this could be, anywhere else in North America people are listening to it's like treasure this thing that you have and if you have an open season for anything it's like everybody is on an equal playing field to go out on whatever days you have available in an open season and 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 don't let anything chip away at that jeopardize that and this is a situation here with the illegal elk harvest this is 100% hunter caused this is not anti-hunters wanting to close down a, a season or uh, this or, or, or that or whatever. There are some things beyond your control that are obviously influencing elk numbers. 
um, that we talked about, you know, habitat and car bumpers and trains and, you know, these, these sorts of things. And folks are working on that stuff. They're, they're trying, but the sheer number of dead animals that do not meet the requirements of the law is a hundred percent on our backs. And it's a hundred percent within our control as a community to reverse that. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. I like that message. And I think, yeah, you brought up like the other challenges facing elk right now. Like I see that as a reason why this is even more important. Like back in the day when we had really healthy elk populations and really strong recruitment, like we probably could have gotten away with uh, high levels of mistake and kill. But yeah, with uh, the way things are going, like with the habitat change and the other causes of mortality, like we just don't really have that comfort like we did before mm-hmm. yeah yep yeah we've got to be definitely be be extra extra careful uh, we've seen that message put out a lot with stone sheep in northern bc this year bc wildlife federation wild sheep society putting out a lot of messaging um, they ran some education on the wild sheep uh, found society of bc ran an educational program this winter about proper aging um to make sure that all the rams they're taking up north this year eight years or age or older like really um hunters grabbed that um got the messages out there took the bull by the horns um you know and and we're trying to put all the pieces in into place and getting that message you know out there that you know it's it's a hundred percent up to you um, to make sure that you're you're taking an eight year old ram or or older and um, because it's the same thing got to treasure what they have in northern British Columbia which is you know pretty much the only place in the world that they're stone sheep yeah and it's a general open season if you're a resident of this province uh, you know most most places up there so um, yeah so so this is the role that we're trying to play here you know, for, for the province with this podcast. I'm glad that you came on is this is an awareness piece, um, that this illegal elk harvest is a conservation hunting opportunity concern. And we're trying to get folks more aware of, of it. Um, maybe there's some spillover benefit, uh, to other areas. Like I said, it could be a, you know, it could be a caribou issue, it yeah. could be a moose issue, it could be a nanny, billy, goat harvest, whatever it is. Um, you know, may, maybe folks will get inspired and, and um, start to create more awareness. Totally. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, like you mentioned the other species, because, yeah, we've been seeing some concerning trends too, like with the nanny, goat harvest, and uh, like you said, up north with the stone sheep. So whatever's going on, like... Uh, kind of wonder like the pressure people feel to come back with something too like i'm sure it's always been there but yeah i kind of get that side of it too like people go out on these hunts and yeah they they want to come back with something but it's just the wrong way to go about your hunt like if you could just remove all that pressure and just enjoy being out there then yeah, you're more likely to make better decisions when it comes down to it. That's that's just my perspective, but I've definitely felt yeah, that like absolutely. going out like you're traveling way up north and like you're taking time off work. It's an expensive trip. You kind of want to come back with something. So I, I totally understand that side of it. 
Yeah, I you know I think we've all we've all felt that um, whether it's just the the sort of the recognition of the harvest. Um, it's a great feeling when your peers and your family um, recognize you for harvesting an animal. I think that feeling probably goes back to the dawn of human species, right? It's like, hey, the hunters are back. Congratulations. Yeah. You know, you, you got a mammoth. Ooh, hey, the tusks are a little short there, buddy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, like it's real. I mean, I, I think that is a real thing. I, I think as hunters, we're providers, and it makes us feel good to get some recognition that we were skilled and accomplished in what we set out what we set out to do so i've felt that pressure no doubt um feel that pressure when your freezer is a little more empty and you know you take this lackadaisical i'm just here enjoying the outdoors <laughs> in september and then you're like holy shit yeah. <laughs> it's like god it just gets serious now right so um but if that's the case, then it's like, don't go after the complicated animals. It's like, don't try to fill your freezer with four point mule deer or sheep meat. It's like, go get a white tail or something or two of them. Well, yeah, that's um, the other low, thing. That's low consequence to decision making. That's a good point. Cause yeah, going back a few years, like we had different opportunities for elk too. Like if you're just hunting elk for the meat, like we had a, a cow season a few years back and then we mm. had that spike season but now it's yeah if you want to harvest and help like you gotta you gotta deal with the point restriction so it's your one opportunity but yeah perhaps there's people who just aren't uh, comfortable who would be better off like hunting a different structure of season that's a bit easier to understand oh abs- absolutely you know absolutely or just yeah just different if you're feeling that pressure it's like switch over to something i mean yeah deer bears um you know i mean it's just i don't know uh i just know you know we go back to your earlier question about kind of what you know what we're hearing or you know the sense and one of the things i hear a lot in the discussions is the role of social media in creating that pressure um i've posed that question on my social media account before and i was actually quite surprised that a large number of the people and it could be just the profile of people that happen to follow me are different than than other accounts but they told me overwhelmingly that most people didn't feel any pressure from social media whether they post coming back from a northern hunt and not getting anything they're saying that's not that's not influencing them they're not feeling pressured because of that yet i do hear a lot of conversations in different forums and stuff where people think that that is a contributing factor interesting that the tv shows you know that oh look they got another whatever in 22 minute episode and next week they'll get another whatever and and it's like holy crap yeah but i've had those years like it seems like all your buddies are having success and you aren't for whatever reason like it can go on for a few years you're not harvesting anything and you're kind of like second guessing yourself like oh what am i doing wrong here i know yeah i know it's like you go on these uh these uh 10 day elk archery season and you know they didn't get another bowl this year had a close encounter oh so and so got one so and so got one so and so (laughs) yeah fuck off yeah (laughs) (laughs) don't tell me those things yeah Uh, 
Hey, man. Um, good conversation. Um, I hope uh, it's influence people some way shape or form uh they're aware of the issue maybe they can take a few things and kind of like even if there's one person that listens to this it's some way shape or form um you know just settles down a little bit in a situation in the field and saying you know i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna let it go it's it's too much of a rush shot before the thing gets in the timber or whatever it is, um, then that'll be a benefit of this show. And um, maybe folks can write into us and tell us their thoughts. What do you think's driving folks? Have you had a experience yourself where you've made this mistake? I think that would be a valuable one to hear from somebody. Never, ever share your name, but if you want to drop us a line and say this is what happened to me uh i think that would be a really valuable you know thing to be able to share anonymously of course and let's treasure any general open hunting season we have anywhere for anything um and when there's hunter issues it's 100 percent within our control to fix them any final thoughts pat no, that's awesome. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to discuss this super oh. important topic. And I know you've done some great educational material, like with chronic wasting disease. So maybe there's some more opportunities for something like that. But yeah, I don't want to come across as like threatening to close the season. Like as we talked about, like the vast majority of hunters are being awesome out there and being really careful and diligent. So keep up the good mm, absolutely. work absolutely yeah i really hope absolutely. we can uh we can fix this by working with the hunting community versus going the regulatory route so yeah if people have ideas then for sure like reach out to me or guys like you and curtis i think that's super valuable and yeah if you're a new hunter and you're getting into it and still trying to figure things out like try and team up with a mentor and yeah, if you're an experienced guy, like I think it's it's your responsibility if you're hunting with guys, make sure that they're all being diligent and responsible and taking the time to get a good count. And don't be afraid to call out your buddies when they're uh, being a bit careless out there. Or if they have some, uh, they're making some dangerous type calls, then yeah, yeah that's part of your role yeah, as for an sure. experienced hunter. That's, that. That's a good call. I mean, I think um, um, peer pressure and education within the hunting community, peer-to-peer education uh, and mentoring is, is probably our two our two most powerful ways of solving hunter-caused problems, really. Yeah. You know? So, you know, one of the ones I've thought about is a, you know, little education thing, and we call it a rule of thumb or whatever is, is if you're looking at an elk or this applies to mule deer as well, because we could probably have the same discussion about, you know, um, four-point mule deer bucks, because we have the four-point mule deer restriction uh, here in the Kootenai region as well, is if you're counting tines and you are looking for that sixth tine on an elk and you're like using your thumb going, there's a little tine there, it's my thumb, and it's like if that's your guide i would say stop doing that and stick your middle finger out 
and give it the bird and say, is the fifth and sixth high not big? You know those stickers in the back of the truck that says F the prime minister <laughs> yeah. with that, that hand? Well, I'm like, I, I want to make one that says, so the person driving behind you sees the middle finger sticking up and just says, hey, buddy, make sure the fifth and sixth hind are that long. Nice. <laughs> so, so there's there's my, my hunter tip of the week or whatever is ditch the rule of thumb, <laughs> go with the bird, yeah. middle finger, make sure it's that long. Uh, yeah I really appreciate you coming on the show Pat um, maybe there's some things we can follow up uh, afterwards For some sure. educational stuff um, we've still got time um, you know 20 uh, something days left in the season uh, to get some messages out we'll we'll do our best and you know maybe this is something where we've got to come together with some stakeholders this winter and and say we'd really like to as a hunting community with your input um, produce a film or a slideshow. We're going to need some funding, um, but it's got to be able to have pictures of elk in all different positions and sizes and bulls and different light and distances and stuff and and turn that into an educational program and try to make it as real world as possible. And Yeah, no, I like that idea. And like the past couple of years, like with COVID, it's been a real struggle connecting with the hunting community. Oh, so we got to find new ways to get the word out. Yep. Yep. All right, cool. man. Appreciate it. Right on. Curtis, take it away. Conservationist podcast is brought to you by Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Next time you're in town or if you're in Cranbrook, swing on by, have a look at the new massive dealership. See how that's coming or swing into the old place and say, hey, we heard you, heard about you on the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Have a coffee or whatever with them and chat about some duck hunting because i know bruce is a big duck hunter so he's probably well underway with the duck hunting season i think i would imagine no no abs well uh, he, he's oh, he's also yeah, a big yeah, yeah. fisherman too yeah. so i think he's he, still, he's still, like weather's still good fishing. fishing that is true yeah yeah um, totally also check out the hunters underground podcast which is on our patron page where mark and i talk about all sorts of different things the last one we did was mandatory testing for bow hunters do we need it or not i think we're gonna have a couple episodes coming out here pretty quick on that too bit of a bow season debrief for the two of us when we were up there in elk camp from the first to the ninth so a lot of good stuff you can find all that at patron.com slash the hunter conservationist podcast it's kind of a exclusive podcast to subscribing members so give it a give it a listen we talk about some pretty cool stuff so thanks folks absolutely no appreciate that appreciate all our patron supporters helping uh, us out a little bit getting some extra content and providing a little bit to help us pay the bills and someday we'll have a big studio like joe rogan and we can fly pat <laughs> in and we'll sit there and <laughs> sounds great i look forward to uh, that yeah totally me too uh pat thanks um hope you have a good hunting season yourself um coming up and um can fill your freezers and 
make some good decisions, of course, and <laughs> yeah. we all will. Yeah, wouldn't that be bad after all this? <laughs> yeah. uh, shoot a five point. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a real thing, yeah. right? Like, I mean, there's people out there, what happens if, you know, that's the guy that made the mistake yeah. or whatever. And it's like, hmm, stick, stick the whitetails. That's that's the safe totally. white tails and ducks. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Yeah, but there's all you can always mistake a loon. Anyways, yeah. that's a different podcast <laughs> or a red tail hawk. I get those marsh hawks flying around <laughs> looking for ducks. You know this, and all of a sudden, oh, oh shit! It's a it's just some darn marsh hawk, right? Yeah, hearts pounding in your chest. So uh, mistakes can happen in the duck blind too. But uh, I'm not desperate for a duck. No. And the attaboys for getting a duck. So, all right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you in the next one. Bye.